0: what is up guys welcome to the wise and well podcast i'm your host herman lynn this is the show that helps make fitness and nutrition way simpler and more realistic so that you can improve your physical health without sacrificing your mental health if you're new to the show and you enjoy it hit subscribe after the episode so that you know when future episodes come out also if you are looking to take your fitness to the next level I offer one-on-one strength and nutrition coaching that is designed to help you build muscle, burn fat, and improve your overall relationship with fitness and nutrition. Just go to wiseandwellcoaching.com to learn more, or just shoot me a DM on Instagram at wiseandwellcoaching. I will always respond to you. All right, guys, on to the episode. This is a topic that I think is really important to cover and i needed someone to talk about it with that was good at going into the 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 little nooks and crannies of the nuance of it because there's a lot of emotion that comes out when we talk about this um and there's some truths to everything that people say but if you kind of have to uncover where what is actually true and what people actually need to know so really it's it's the topic of the metabolism um And that I feel like just saying that word unlocks a lot of, yeah, (laughs) here we go. But it's, it's this idea that you, you just, you hear this all the time, right? This, this, the same story that someone is doing everything right. They're eating well, they're working out. They might even be losing some weight for a little bit. And then it kind of starts to, to crash out, um, and, and stalls. Right. And there's, there's some people who believe that that's being caused by your metabolism essentially breaking, right? Metabolic damage is what people will say. Or kind of like lumped into the same vein is, is the idea of like starvation mode, right? That your body is literally trying, starting to hold on to fat and not let you lose any more weight because it's, it's, it's fears that you're going to die, right. Essentially can to some degree to the point where you can actually break your metabolism for the long run and it will, you know, you'll start gaining weight and your metabolism won't speed back up. Um, we'll kind of start there. Cause there's, I think this can go into a lot of places, but start
1: with those six, very heavily loaded topics. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So one, you know, I just wanted to kind of just get yeah. your, your take on, um the idea itself and we'll kind of go into you know what is actually true and what's not
1: for sure so again uh, several different directions we could go here but what immediately comes to mind and i think why people get so fiery about this subject is because per usual with anything health and fitness related uh people forget to kind of operate in the middle conversationally speaking so on one end you have people who say oh i'm not losing weight because you know, whether it's metabolic adaptation, whether it's starvation mode, whether it's, you know, you know, chronic dieting, whatever the case is. And then on the other end, you have people screaming calorie deficit, calorie deficit, calorie deficit, to which that original group comes back and says, no, there are hormonal implications. There are, again, metabolic implications, there are genetic implications. And per usual, the truth is somewhere right in the middle. But the thing that I always like to emphasize to people is, yes, you know metabolic, and this is the most unscientific phrase ever, but I'm going to go with it, ebbs and flows, which we can get into in a minute, metabolic ebbs and flows, and uh, genetics, and hormones, and age, all these things play a role in whether or not you are losing weight, but nothing actually supersedes your calorie intake in terms of the actual importance and what what's actually dictating whether or not you're losing weight. So again, I think a lot of people get fiery because People don't meet in the middle at all. The calorie people don't acknowledge that there are some hormonal factors at play, that there are some metabolic factors at play, and your metabolism isn't the singular static thing. But again, you have that first group who thinks that it is just metabolism. If did I explain that okay?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, what is when it comes to something like starvation mode? Mm-hmm. What is the actual truth? Like, is your body holding on to fat? Is it is it preventing weight loss when? you drop calories too low or what's going on?
1: So I'll use, and I'm blanking on whether we actually talked about this the last time I came on, but I'll use what is often considered a fairly harsh example of say a prisoner of war or somebody who is legitimately starving, who is not being f- fed any food whatsoever. We've all seen those horrific pictures and history books on the news, etc. And not one of those people reached a point where their bodies said, wait a minute, hold up. I'm not getting food anymore. I'm just going to maintain at this heavier body weight. It's just, it ju- doesn't happen anywhere. I want to say the real world and you know, make anybody feel bad. But in the real yeah. world, quite honestly, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in nature. So there's no scenario where we are going to be the exception to that science and reach this point where our bodies say, okay, I anticipate not being fed enough. So I'm just going to hold you steady right here in an effort to preserve life, I guess, would be the sentiment. Now, again, going back to that Somewhere in the middle conversation. Is metabolic adaptation a thing? Yes. Is it to the degree that people think where it's actually halting their progress? Almost certainly no, unless we're talking very extreme, precise examples. For everybody else, and I know nobody likes hearing this, but it's the truth of the matter. You're just in a scenario where you're almost certainly eating more calories than you think. And again, this is something that so many of us talk about that I understand the. Kind of fatigue of hearing it for people who are frustrated that they can't lose weight, like, yeah, yeah, calories, whatever. And it sounds so much more appealing to gravitate toward, oh, maybe it is starvation mode, maybe it is my metabolism is shot, maybe it is my genetics, maybe it's you know, my hormones are throwing me off, whatever. I understand Mm -hmm. why you might want to jump on one of those things and say, okay, that's the reason. Perhaps it's a little bit easier to stomach than just saying, no, I'm just eating more than I think. But the thing that I always emphasize with clients here is me saying you are eating more than you think is not any judgment on your character whatsoever. This is not me shaming you. This is not me calling you a liar. Although, let's be honest, not everybody is super honest in our food logs. All I'm saying is it's very, very easy to accidentally Underestimate how much you're eating. It's, it's the nature of the world that we live in where an appetizer at a restaurant might be quite literally 30 to 40% of your calories for the entire day. There's some mixed drinks, some sugary stuff that might have, again, a third to half of your calories for the entire day. So instead of looking at all these other potential scapegoats and it must be this and it must be this, why don't we, to seal a line from Mike Dola, why don't we play food detective? And figure out, okay, where might I be missing calories throughout my day? Because that's such a controllable factor. And the good news for us is that means you're not broken. broken That means you're not screwed because you're over 40, over 50, over 60 plus. You just pay a little bit more attention to this stuff. And we can get into all the ways that um, people can be a little bit more precise after, but you pay a little bit more attention to this stuff. And almost certainly you're going to find that you don't have to starve yourself to lose weight. I find that when people get more precise with this and stop blaming all these other factors, their theoretical calorie budget for what they can lose weight on is actually much higher than they think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I to go back to your first point of just, you know, just from a common sense, like mm-hmm. think about it logically, there's there are starving people, right? And nowhere in that do you see that it's if you look at images of of countries right where people are literally starving there's no point where they're holding on to fat right like that's just not a reality and it's so then you could you start you start thinking about that it's like oh well is that like a is that like a middle class problem, right? Like, is there like yeah. a certain point where, like, oh yeah, if, as long as you're just dipping to this calorie number, you're going to hold on to it. But as soon as you go like really, really low, like then you'll actually start starving. Like, yeah. it doesn't we, make we doesn't make a lot silly of sense. As
1: you say that out loud, but I mean that in like a a, a good way. Like, yeah. okay, if we actually map this out, it's what twelve hundred calories is a magic number that breaks your metabolism. Right. But then when you get down to eight hundred, you start starving again and losing weight. That doesn't exactly. make any sense.
0: It makes no sense. And and like just just to put a little bit of like actual resource behind this too. Right. So I'm, mean, I'm, sure, you know, this one, I don't know. You might've even talked about it, but the Minnesota starvation yep. experiment. So probably like the one that I feel like every nutritionist just kind of has in their, their back pocket oh, yeah. of just talking about <laughs> this, but this is for people listening. This is like the, the probably the most unethical study. <laughs> one of the most unethical studies we've ever done. It will never be replicated. And they essentially took 36 guys. They, for six months, they cut their calories in half, literally 50% of what they should be eating on a daily basis. And just to make sure that they weren't just sitting around, they made them walk 22 miles every single week. So unbelievably extreme, what these conditions were for these guys, they lost 25% of their body weight, a quarter of what they weigh. Like if you literally Google Minnesota starvation experiment and look and at the, the photos, pictures, of these guys, it's, yeah. it's disgusting. It's crazy. Like they were, they were close to death. Some of the things like one of the guys cut off three of his own fingers to try to get out of it. It's, it's brutal stuff. And when you looked at what actually happened to them, like one, they lost the weight, right? It didn't, it didn't prevent them. And they looked at where, where the metabolism was after and their metabol their metabolic rate did drop more than what you would expect by about 20%. Now think about that, right? So the most extreme example you could possibly think of, we cut their calories in half, their metabolic rate dropped 20% more than you, it should, it didn't stop. It didn't come to a complete halt. Yes. It decreased. So there is some effect to your point, right? Once they, they stopped, they let them eat again within like six months. Most of them were completely back to normal. Yeah. So. I think that example shows us, you know, it's, it's, there is an effect. (laughs) If you go to that extreme levels, there's a different study too. There's a Norwegian study where they actually took, um, I can't remember how many, I think it was like 170 overweight women. So this kind of shows you like, I think the other part of the starvation experiment was, well, that was all men. What happens to women? Right. And it was a much less extreme example, but they lost, I think they lost on average, like 26 pounds over five months. And same thing. They looked at where was their metabolism before, during the weight loss, a year after, two years after. And their metabolism did change as well to a much, much smaller degree, about five to 15%. And what that accounts to is like 50 to 150 calories
1: difference yes, negligible and much of that has to do with obviously you know this um a change in total body size a smaller body needs less energy so for actually was, this
0: was outside of
1: that oh this was outside of that yes. okay okay so
0: truly resting metabolic rate so that's that's where they found like there is some so there's gonna be then we, we can kind of talk about that next yeah. right but, just,
1: that's a good segue then <laughs> yeah
0: um but there is so this is like you're truly rest, resting metabolic rate um And they don't, they don't necessarily know why they think likely, I think Herman Ponser found that it's likely that your body just gets more efficient at not burning as many calories, right. To, to preserve a little bit, but it's just, it's so much smaller than what we possibly think it is. But to your point, I think we should probably go into what actually does happen when you start going into a calorie deficit. And part of that is you start, you burn calories based off of your body size.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And if we look at actually, again, a few different directions I want to go here, but I think something that would benefit a lot of people to learn more about is actually understanding what makes up their TDEE. So total daily energy expenditure, obviously your basal metabolic rate is one factor, uh, but the other three are going to be your NEAT. So your non-exercise activity your eat, so your exercise activity, thermogenesis if you want to get fancy, and then you have the thermic effect of food as well. So those are the other three factors that are going to influence and impact how many calories or how much energy your body needs on a daily basis. And I think where a lot of people get tripped up is they put all their eggs into that eat basket, that exercise activity thermogenesis basket. Essentially, let me just go to Orange Theory or F45, you know, hop on a Peloton bike and just absolutely crush myself. But the thing that a lot of people don't realize is unless you have the same workout habits and time for workouts as Michael Phelps, this is only making up five, maybe 10-ish percent of that energy expenditure on a weekly basis, it's actually fairly negligible. No matter how, how hard you feel like you go in the gym, and everybody's heard this, so nobody likes hearing it, but I'll say it anyway. All of your gadgets, your Apple Watch, your Fitbit, the you know gym monitors, etc., overwhelmingly overestimate how many calories you're actually burning here, anyway. So, wow, I like twenty five percent, yeah, it's drastic. It's drastic. Yeah. So, for all intents and purposes, we can just assume that eat. So again, when I say eat, that's just the exercise component accounts for call it between five to 10% of that total daily energy expenditure. And if you look at kind of the recipe for weight loss frustration, it's usually the one, two punch of underestimating calorie intake and overestimating calorie burn. So that moves us kind of to the next two components, which are going to be let's go into neat specifically, something that I actually think is, uh, Finally, getting a lot more popular in conversation of non-exercise activity and its importance. And let me add a little caveat here before I describe it. Uh, Walking is about far more than just burning calories. So I don't want you to hear me say anything that I'm about to say and think, okay, Sam wants me to get outside and walk just so I can burn as many calories as possible. Uh, Because to be honest, there are very few activities that are efficient at doing that anyway. So that wouldn't even be a good use of your time. But when we look at the percentage of that total daily energy expenditure for people who are walking a lot on a daily basis, that can actually be up to 10 to 15%, which that may not sound like a huge jump, but many women have to diet on call it 1400 to 1800 calories. That's a super off the top of my head ballpark, but that's not uncommon somewhere in that Mm -hmm. range. So if you're increasing your need, and then your total daily energy expenditure goes up 5 to 10%. That can make the difference in whether or not you're dieting on 1,400 versus, again, I'm ballparking these numbers, so don't quote me on them or do the math and challenge me if you're listening to this. But maybe you're dieting now on 1,600, which can make a substantial difference when we're dealing with reduced calorie amounts. And again, let me circle back to, I am not just saying to walk to burn calories because you're yeah. also looking at. Improved digestion, reduced stress, reduced anxiety, potentially better sleep if you get your steps in outside, better recovery, uh, more regulated blood sugar. The list goes on, increased longevity, decreased risk of chronic disease. I could go on and on about walking specifically. But then that last component is uh, TEF, so your thermic effect of food, which just refers to how many calories you're burning during digestion. Um, and theoretically speaking, protein. Compared to carbs and fats has a higher thermic effect meaning your body burns more calories digesting protein But the numbers you typically see are at least a little bit overblown Because a lot of the research done on this is done in isolation And how often are we actually having just straight chicken breast for a meal? We're probably having it with something else as well. So that does bring the thermic effect down a little bit Um, so if you were to try to turn this card yeah, a higher protein diet could make a little bit of a difference, but consider it more icing on the cake and beneficial for other reasons like hunger management, muscle retention, etc. So all of this said, again, we're looking at your basal metabolic rate, which is the bulk of your total daily energy expenditure, which is a shorter way to say that. We're looking at your exercise activity, non-exercise, and thermic effect of food. The biggest lever that you can pull out of all of those is quite literally walking more on a daily basis, mm-hmm. which again, I think blows a lot of people's minds. It's easy to scoff at because it's like walking. Does that quote unquote count as a workout? Is it even worth it? Uh, but it's, and I put it right up there with higher quality sleep and meal planning for the most underrated habits that contribute to long-term success. Yeah.
0: So I think this is a really important point. And- The reason why is as we kind of go back to what happens when you're in a calorie deficit, there's primarily like we kind of talked about, right? There's a little bit of an effect from just purely your metabolism from an adapt, it adapts right slightly to burn less calories. There's two other things that really happen. One is as your body weight decreases, you burn less calories. I think people are surprised to hear that if someone weighs 300 pounds and someone weighs 150 pounds the person who weighs 300 burns way more calories to simply maintain their body so as you decrease your weight you burn less calories to maintain your body weight kind of sucks right <laughs> because then
1: it feels yes. not fair you do all that work just to have lower maintenance calories
0: yeah at some <laughs> like there once you get to that lower weight you will have to eat less calories than you did before it'll hopefully it's it's higher than your deficit right but there will be a point where you will hit a weight that the only way you can keep losing is to decrease more calories if it's below your new maintenance like that's just the reality of what it is the other big thing this is i think This is where I think most of the cause of weight plateaus happen and where people get really frustrated and we start going into things like metabolic damage and starvation mode Mm -hmm. is that what we see is that people's NEAT severely decreases. So think about this just like logically, right? That if you are on a diet and you're eating less food, you're probably a little bit more tired, right? Right you probably are trying to to steer your car around for like an extra two minutes to find that closest parking spot to the store, right? You're probably taking the elevator instead of the stairs sometimes. And even if you do get your workout in, and for a lot of people, they're trying to lose weight, they're probably doing some kind of like intense orange theory, right? You're probably sitting on the couch a lot after that. And that is where the calories really add up. And so- this is where you start seeing a lot of that, you know, man, this is so frustrating. Like, why am I not losing any more weight? Well, you're, you're unintentionally burning a lot less, like even to the point where you might not even be thinking about it, like fidgeting your foot a lot less. Right. So having something like walking where you simultaneously say, you know what, I'm going to be in the calorie deficit, but I'm also going to make sure that my steps are here. You counteract some of that. Um, maybe not all of it, but you're going to give yourself a much better chance to not just fully let the movement completely drop to a halt.
1: Yeah, at least tracking it right. And I know it's cliche, but what gets measured gets managed. So that's one of the reasons why I think the vast majority of us coaches do include a daily or weekly step total is because when left unchecked or unmeasured, it's very likely that to your point, Herman, subconsciously, a lot of people end up being a little less active and a little less active, which actually brings about a, I think, a relevant point for a lot of people. When you and I think about activity levels, we're obviously thinking about how much you're moving over the course of an entire day or week. When most people, and this isn't to, you know, Pat us on the back here. This is just the way we're thinking about things as coaches. Mm-hmm. Whereas in most people think about their activity levels, they are purely thinking about workout frequency. Yeah. So it is so, so common for me to see maybe on like a coaching application, um, you know, tell me a little bit more about your activity levels and people default straight to why typically, you know, I do boot camp three days per week and then Peloton twice. And then if I can make it to Orange Theory, and I'm not trying to dump on all these modalities, by the way, they have their yeah. place. Um, but people list all those things and then I follow with, okay, do you know roughly how much you're walking on a daily basis? Oh, well, I don't really have time to walk, you know, between this, this, and this. I'm like, oh, okay. So it's actually quite possible that outside of your workouts, which even if they're frequent, make up a small percentage of your week, you're actually fairly sedentary, or I think honestly more commonly, sporadically sedentary. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure you've seen this a million times where again somebody is crushing themselves in the gym four to five days per week. And then their step totals, depending on what they have going on, it looks like 3,000, 5,500, 29, 8,000. It's kind of all over the place. Whereas if you bring up that baseline, again, we're not sitting here saying only walk to try to lose weight but a byproduct of getting that neat to a reasonable level, which actually that could probably be a conversation in itself is how many steps is actually enough. I know that's another fiery one for people as of late. uh, But for most of my clients, I would say a bare minimum of seven to 8,000 steps per day is like a new standard for kind of what the floor is on an inactive day. And then if you get 10,000 plus, that's icing on the cake. That's wonderful. I will say and this could probably be a podcast episode in itself, like many of the things we talk about, but for, um, quote unquote, smaller women who kind of identify as more petite and are only looking to lose a little bit of weight, maintenance calories are a little bit less, um, higher meat levels are are going to be paramount. So a lot of people can technically get away with a little bit less. That is one demographic. I would definitely push a little bit more. Um, Ironically enough, not even to ramp up the workout side of things, because oftentimes there are benefits to scaling back that at least a little bit Mm -hmm. and reallocating that time toward uh, more walking, not only for the calorie effect, but all the other benefits that we listed earlier.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see why you wouldn't ever use a combination of both. You know, if I'm trying to put someone in a calorie deficit, like, of course you're going to have to eat less food, right? But why not be able to eat a little bit more food by, by walking yeah. wherever you are today. If you're walking 4,000 walk 6,000, if you're walking 6,000 walk 8,000, right? If you're walking 8,000 walk 10,000, like just doing a little bit more, you're going to, it's just going to be, it's going to be so much easier to be in the deficit. Cause it allows you not to say like, Oh, like I'm, I'm trying to eat as much food as I possibly can. But but kind of, but kind <laughs> to, of right. Agree, like, yeah. Like I think it's uh, I think a lot of people try to think about like how do I avoid as much food as possible. Where I think the uh, the more prudent approach is to say how do I eat as much as possible while still being in a deficit, mm-hmm. right? Because <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be the easiest to sustain for the longest, and you're gonna need to sustain for the longest. Like I I think we once you move away from all these you know lose ten pounds in twenty one day models, like it's it's and you start thinking about like okay real. Fat loss is gonna require some time. I probably gotta do this for like six months if I'm losing one to two pounds a week, right? At at best. So what do I got to do to maintain that? Right. Like what what is realistic? And I think once you start thinking in that lens, you really start forming a a strategy around it. Like we're talking here, which obviously a coach helps a lot because you can kind of form that strategy together, but it's gonna have to be a mix of multiple things instead of just one strategy in itself.
1: So true. And I think people do For the most part, look almost exclusively at food restriction as the means to the end, which is fair because you know what you put in your mouth dictates weight loss more than virtually everything else. But if we look at what contributes to you actually keeping that weight off, it's almost certainly not going to be that hyper focus on I can't have this, I shouldn't have that, I'm bad if I eat this, and all of those things. Uh, it's gonna be how can I? And again, I think the word lifestyle. Is one of those things where people's eye, you know, people's eyes. Try that again. People's eyes roll a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah, we get it. It's a lifestyle. It's yeah. not a quick fix. But no, like it really is. This is something that needs to be. I always say a uh, a fundamental and permanent change to the way that you're living your life because mm-hmm. the alternative is, you know, that extremely low calorie range and this hyper fixation on food. And that doesn't have to be the case if you get all those other areas in check. Walking more, getting more protein. Strength training, developing muscle. Which, as an aside, something you'll often hear is a case for bringing up your metabolic rate as well, if you, you know, you put on muscle, your body's just incinerating fat at rest. And I wish yeah. that were the case, uh, but similar to some of the examples we gave earlier, when you actually look at the numerical differences of um, how metabolically active a pound of uh, muscle is versus a pound of fat, the difference is fairly neg- negligible. Where somebody who's walking around with, you know. 10 to 15 extra pounds of muscle, which in the muscle building world, that is gigantic. That is a huge difference. 10 to 15 pounds of muscle is substantial. Calorie wise, you're not looking at very much there, which brings us back to, okay, what are the two bigger controllable factors? Obviously food management, we'll just call it that, planning ahead, mostly nutrient dense foods, hunger management, et cetera. uh, And then bringing up your overall activity levels to support those weight management goals.
0: Yeah, I mean it's almost like if you think about trying to get wealthy, right? Or, or I guess even a better example is trying to pay off debt, right? Of course, you are going to have to spend less money, right? Like that's that's kind of an inevitable. Now, if you already have, like, let's see, and this is, I guess, in a world where, like, let's say you already have like a career, right? Mm-hmm. And you and you're just overspending a little bit, and you got to spend a little bit less now to get to get back in line. Now you could go drive uber for a little bit right like that that's gonna help pay off but most of it's probably going to come from spending less money and the uber's just going to make it a little bit easier cuz hey maybe it could still go out for dinner on a weekend not completely have to do nothing right for the next year but those two together make the overall strategy one without the other is two very different scenarios i, th- I would think of exercise and restricting food in a similar vein when it comes to a calorie deficit. Like I think we have to be able to think about the total big picture in itself. Now I do want to ask you,
1: mm-hmm.
0: cause you brought that up, the muscle part. So there is, and this is where I think this whole conversation becomes very important because I think when it comes to the metabolism, it's so mysterious, right? And mystical that there's a lot of people selling, around it. And oh, yeah. <laughs> selling solutions, products, you know, hormone elixirs, whatever the hell it is. But the, you know, one of the biggest ones is talking about going into a reverse diet, right. Raising your metabolic rate, um, building more muscle. And like, and I, and I think I can get much more on board when you talk about like, Hey, let's go build muscle, right. Let's have a strength training program and increase calories. But, What is your thoughts on just that idea in general of, hey, let's not go into a calorie deficit. You've been trying forever. Um, I guess there's the approach of like, if someone is physically saying like, we got to heal your metabolism, that's different. Um, But let's say even someone who has good intentions, right? Who is saying like, hey, I think we should just focus on building muscle for a while. And that's going to help you be able to get in a calorie deficit later.
1: So a few thoughts that immediately come to mind there. Number one, for a lot of people, the psychological difference, almost that, so not even talking the physiological side of the equation, the psychological difference and all of the habits associated with flipping things from, I'm going to try to be as small as possible and eat as little as possible and just less, 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 flipping things in the other direction tends to drive adherence significantly. So I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that there aren't, again, physiological differences, which I'll get into in a second. But I think from a psychological perspective, taking somebody who's been a chronic dieter and say, all right, let's just take a breather for a second and focus on building muscle that usually contributes to adherence in a major way, which is actually a nice little segue to, um, and I what I'm about to say is not meant to challenge people who advocate for reverse dieting or a lot of the success stories that you'll see, but it is obviously quite common where you'll see, you know, a coach post something, you know, this client was on a 1,200 calorie day diet and we reverse them back up to you know 1,800 and now they're losing more weight. To go back to our logical example from earlier in this conversation and actually to, to tie this in with that financial analogy, is there ever a scenario where you spend even more money and you get out of debt at a faster rate? It's just numerically, it doesn't add up and again, I'm, I'm not saying it's to challenge anybody uh, or like stir it up, but it is what it is. What's actually happening, as I just alluded to, the vast majority of the time is when somebody's on a quote unquote 1200 calorie diet on paper and they think they have this extreme metabolic adaptation, they think they're dealing with starvation mode, et cetera. And you actually look at how that 1200 calorie diet plays out throughout the week or out the month, it probably looks a little bit more like a thousand calories, 1400 calories by accident because you underestimated something, maybe 12, and I'm being generous here, maybe 12. Uh, 15, because you forgot to log something. Oh my God, I feel so deprived. I feel like I could eat my arm. 2,700, but I don't realize it's 2,700 because I like to shy away from the numbers when I overeat because that's scary. Nobody wants to look at that. Yeah. So I still feel like I'm mostly at a 1,200 calorie diet. And then we know how the weekends go. So if you ask somebody, oh, you know, what was your diet? Oh, I was doing 1,200 calories. And I, was, I was pretty consistent. But when we go really quantitative, we'll see the net result might've been 1,900 or 2,000 calories, which is not that hard to do. Again, us coaches talk about you know these 3,000 or 3,500 calorie weekend blowouts. And most people feel like, me, I could never eat 3,500 calories. I feel like it's tough to eat 2,000. When you're looking at untracked high calorie per bite items, it's not actually that hard to get that high. So that, again, that brings that net average up. Now we talk reverse dieting again those psychological implications of oh we're going to add food back to your plate now you feel less restricted now you feel more likely to buy and like okay I can stick to this calories and you know with the traditional reverse diet with those incremental jumps you know okay I'm going to get a little more food on my plate a little more food on my plate my budget's going to increase so I have this light at the end of the tunnel now I'm sticking with the uh, you know say somebody's reversing on paper out of 1,200. Maybe they jump straight to 1,350 and then 1,500. By the way, I'm not a huge fan when people do go this route of dragging out reverse dieting this much, unless there's like a a psychological thing that we're kind of troubleshooting where somebody's really afraid of eating more food. So we take things a little bit slowly. It just adds to diet fatigue. So get those calories up as quickly as you can. But again, since adherence goes to the roof, your on paper plan may look like it's significantly more calories now, but 95% of the time, all that's happened is your adherence has gotten significantly better. So it wasn't actually a metabolic culprit. It wasn't, you know, my hormones were out of whack. You didn't need to balance your hormones. You didn't need, you know, this metabolic fix. It wasn't any of those things. It was just adherence that needed to go up. But that's a significantly less sexy topic. Here I am saying, oh, it's not actually, you know, this physiological thing or this. You just weren't super consistent. But that doesn't make for a good headline on a potential program like, oh, I'm um, this new 12-week consistency program where we're going to go from not that consistent to more consistent. People just fall asleep at that. Whereas if I say we're going to do the 21-day, uh, and I, I apologize if somebody has a program called this, it's literally just alliteration off the top of my head, the metabolic mastery program. And again, I truly don't know if somebody has a program like that. So let me just get uh, ahead I gotta of I got to
0: scratch that one now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the metabolic mastery program. And it's like, oh, that sounds better. Somebody's telling me I'm broken. Yeah. So now I, I don't have that same personal responsibility compared to us sitting here saying, no, you might just be underestimating your calories and not super active. Um, but that's a tangent in itself. Hopefully, I explained that okay in terms of the implications of reverse dieting.
0: Yeah. And so, this, like, this exact line, where is where for me it becomes so messy because going back, I think like let's tie back the, the physiological piece with the behavior part of this, right? Because this is where the real damage I guess comes from, right? When you are restricting calories for a long time. And for some people, like for years, right? Decades. Decades. I have clients in their
1: sixties who started dieting on paper when they were 14.
0: Yes. And the reality is like, let's go back to the Minnesota starvation experiment. Right. Like I kind of alluded to it, but these people went crazy. Like there's, I mean, there's literally, this study is like over a thousand pages and you can literally see like detailed accounts of what these people did. Like the guy who cut off three of his own fingers, he can't remember if he did it on purpose or not. Like that's how out of it he was. And the craziest thing is that once they actually got out of here what you saw on the flip side is that they ate an unbelievable amount of calories for weeks, for months. Like they, they were eating so much higher than their maintenance to almost kind of like counteract everything that they did. Does that mean that physiologically, like the metabolism was broken? It was no, it's behaviorally. Mm -hmm. They, they got to a place where like, like I think anyone that's been in in a calorie deficit or a diet, it kind of sucks. You know, like let's let's be real about that. And if you especially if you're at a point where like you're not saying like oh yeah, you know, I'm going to go into a, a moderate de- de- calorie deficit of, like 15 20%, you know, some people cut their calories by like 30 40% because they just try to let's say you're restricting all carbs, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever it is. And so when you say like I think to your point like when you talk about consistency, when you talk about like discipline, like all these things it's I think part of this is like as a person, as a human being, you just had to realize like you're just doing something really hard. And even when I go up and eat, like the, I don't track all the time, but I'll just, I'll, I kind of like do like my track audits, right? Where I like I'll just pick a, a week and I just, I just track, kind of see where I'm at. You know, what am I missing? What's the big opportunities? I, I kind of know where most of my meals are. And every single time. Like no matter what, I'm like, wow, that was completely off from what I thought it was. You know, it's, it's just, it's just human nature. It's really hard. And when you're in a stress state where you're constantly thinking about food, you're, you don't want to move much. Cause you're, you know, you're, you you do not have a lot of energy, like the amount of times that you can make a, a mistake like that, where you, you know, you forgot to track something or you didn't feel like measuring, or you went out to eat and you said, ah, I think it's this, you know, like, that's just it's really hard to be perfect. So I think that's like important for people to like understand too, is that it's so easy for someone to come sell you something because you're doing a really hard thing in it in itself. And so then when you have the flip side, you know, I think there's, there's two benefits. I think you nailed that on the head of like, I didn't even really think about it from once you start doing this, you start gaining more confidence, you start feeling more energy, right? Like, Of course, it's going to be easier to do a calorie deficit on the other side because you, you just feel so much better. I think, like physiologically too, you know, like we, the exact opposite thing happens from the calorie deficit when you start eating more calories. Well, you get a lot more energy, right? Which feels pretty good. So you start walking more too, and as you start building muscle, I think you're right that you're not necessarily burning so many more calories from each like pound of muscle, like people used to say, Mm -hmm. but muscle does improve your blood sugar management. Right now, what happens? Oh, you have even more energy when you eat certain foods, right? You're able to eat a bunch of carbs and, and there's a less likely chance that you're going to crash in two hours. Right? Like all those things I think add up and make a difference. And the other thing is, you know, from like a perspective of, I think this also matters kind of like where you are in your body composition journey, right? Because this is like where I look at someone, the people that I work with who maybe come from a world of, and I was like this, they're coming from a world like where you felt skinny fat, mm-hmm. right? You're at a point now where, you know, you're like, I, you know, like I'm, I think I'm like pretty thin overall. Like my arms are are pretty thin. But it's like, I just have like this little gut that just kind of like won't go away. And it's like the older you get, it just like kind of like keeps creeping up. Right. And you're like, you're working out all the time. You're doing like intense hit cardio all the time. For me, I was, you know, I was, I was avoiding carbs. I was intermittent fasting. I was at a point where I was just eating not enough for a while, you know, for the amount of activity that I was doing, but my body composition never changed. I wasn't losing weight. You know, it was like, I didn't understand what was happening. And in that, in that situation now, like 10 times out of town, I would tell that person, go build muscle, mm-hmm. you know, cause you're going to build muscle and what happens, you know, you're going to weigh more, but you probably should weigh more and your body composition is going to completely change. Cause since you have more muscle now, your body fat as a percentage of your body weight is lower. And you look completely different. So in my case, and for a lot of other people, you know, like if I look back to where I was five years ago, I weigh 15 pounds more today.
1: Which and, would terrify most people. If which you, would terrify and obviously most people. 15 pounds doesn't apply to everybody, but just even the idea of gaining a few pounds by choice yes. terrifies most people.
0: Yes. And, and I would never go back to to them like to what i look like or to what i felt like i am so much happier with both today and so that's where i think this whole thing becomes really hard because it is so dependent on where you are in your own personal journey and kind of what your next move should be
1: yeah those are i mean you explain that perfectly one thing that we haven't touched upon that i think would play really nicely with this this part of the conversation um, diet breaks and maintenance phases Mm-hmm. Um, again, when we're looking at the psychological component or somebody who's been chronic dieting for a while, and as we've both touched upon now, one of the reasons why reverse dieting often produces a very desirable result is because if I actually, dieting in general, I often use this analogy. If I said, Herman, I want you to run up that hill as hard and as fast as you can, you said, okay, great. When do I get to stop? We'll see. You're like, what? Are you, oh, okay. And you might give me your best effort, but it's also...
0: Very likely
1: that you'd sandbag it at least a little bit until you find out like, when am I going to get to stop this? Whereas if I said, I want you to run up until that second telephone pole, you'd likely go a lot harder because you know there's a designated end or stop. And to jump ahead here, I am not saying that the healthy lifestyle itself should have mm. a hard stop date or it's just a health kick, jump start, quick fix, whatever you want to call it. But being in a deficit specifically... Most people haven't even heard of a diet breaker maintenance phase. I do think similar to the topic of meat, it's gaining popularity. And I do also, not I think I know once upon a time, the thought was, okay, you know, a diet breaker maintenance phase, which to clarify is just a, temporarily, or excuse me, a temporary period of elevated calories. People often thought they had um, huge physiological implications like, oh, your metabolism shot, you bring up your calories a little bit, your metabolism shoots back up, and then you kind of continue. That's not really the case. Again, it is more a psychological thing. So that's why often now with my clients, I will have scheduled diet breaks. And I keep saying these interchangeably, diet break versus maintenance phase. Maintenance phase is just generally considered to be a longer period. Whereas a diet break, it might be 10 to 14 days or something like that for the psychological upside. But to go back to that sprinting up a hill analogy, if I say, okay, as of right now, the plan is to be in a calorie deficit for maybe 12 weeks or so. And we're not married to any of these timelines, by the way. So if somebody's absolutely crushing, they feel great mentally, biofeedback's in a great place, we're not going to pull the plug on the deficit just because. But loosely, it might be, okay, we're going to spend 12 weeks in a deficit, at which point we'll enter a, I'm going to make this up, two-week diet break, three-week diet break, something like that. Now for those 12 weeks, Generally speaking, somebody is much more likely to say, "Okay, I'm going to put two feet in the fat loss door because I know in a couple of weeks, couple of months, whatever it ends up being, my calories are going to come back up." I personally often advocate for bigger carb portions, specifically, so you have better workouts, better recovery, mm-hmm. keep hunger at bay, etc. Assuming that your protein and fiber is fairly constant, um, and again, you just get significantly more buy-in. But that's one of those things, similar to choosing to gain weight choosing to be at maintenance, choosing to be in a surplus that terrifies people, somebody who wants to lose all the weight and they want to lose it yesterday. And I say, oh, we're actually going to take a quote unquote break from dieting. It's like, why, why would I do that? Like, I'm trying to lose weight. Like, That doesn't make any sense. I think the word itself can be kind of detrimental calling it a break. I mean, it is what it is, but I often challenge clients to reframe it as a different type of progress. So we're going to learn how to not be super impatient all the time and actually get a breather. We're going to learn how to um, not rebound because most people obviously have a restricted calorie diet. They ride it out, not until they get a result, but usually until they fizzle out and then they go in the other direction back and forth. So we're going to get ahead of that stuff. We're going to practice maintenance, which is ideally where most people should be living most of their life. And we're not going to wait until the end of your eventual dieting phases, depending on how many it takes to actually get ahead of that stuff. So I do think that's something else a lot more people should be aware of and work into their plans, uh, diet breaks and maintenance phases specifically. And to add one little caveat, it is not uncommon for me to also incorporate tracking breaks with my clients. I don't want to see a 200-day streak on my fitness pal. That tells me that you're probably going to panic if I tell you to keep the app in your pocket for a few days. So alongside these diet breaks, maintenance phases where calories come up, often in the form of carbs. I will often work in some form of a tracking break, even if it's just a numerical tracking break where I just have them write down their choices, but they're not using a food scale. So they can kind of look back at the day and say, all right, I didn't use my fitness pal, but did I still get a few proteins, a few fruits, a few vegetables? And we can kind of look at the day from an aerial view. But that's a bit of a, a separate topic. Um, but yeah,
0: I like that. I like the idea of, of tracking breaks too, because I think a lot of people and go down this route where it's it becomes like I don't know how to eat without this, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times you have to like you they have to like prove to themselves, hey, no, it's exactly. okay. Um, you know what you're doing, right? Like most of the time, even like when I'm not tracking now because I have it's i i generally know what i'm eating how many calories how much how much protein i'm getting it's just not exact you know because right now i'm not trying to to do that i'm not trying to intentionally take my weight down but i it, it is such an important point that you bring up this whole idea of i mean this the cycles right seasons like and i don't think most people really operate in this manner at all and it is tough if you're not really with a coach right i think in general to do some of these things but so many people would be better served from spending, like if you, you know, like laying out like an ideal year where most of the time you're just kind of at maintenance, right? And then maybe you take like a six to eight week to maybe 10 week cycle of bulking where you're actually eating, you know, 200 calories more a day. And building some muscle and like just using it, you know. To your point, add some carbs, get really, really strong in the gym. Those are the best workouts you're ever gonna get. Oh, absolutely. And and it's gonna feel you're gonna feel fantastic. And then you know, on on the flip side, maybe you go into like a six to eight week cut at some point, and where you're saying like I'm gonna and I, like like the way we're talking about all this, right? Like it's not like a willy nilly diet. How we most of us think, like oh, I'm gonna start a diet tomorrow, right? Like you need to get ready to go into this thing, like psychologically, right? Like you're going to feel a little bit hungry. You're going to feel a little bit tired. You're going to think about food more. You are going to be way more tempted by things that are in your pantry. What's in your pantry? Do you still, do you think that you want to have it there when you start this thing? Right? Like you got to prepare for some of these things because it is a little bit hard and that's, that's okay. It's supposed to be, we're going to do this for the next six to 10 weeks. And we're going to like really, really do it, right? Like we're going to be all in and then we're going to be out. Then we're going to go back to maintenance, right? And if you can do that, I think it's it's a lot easier kind of having that that true adherence to, to, to committing to doing that for, for that time. And I think if you keep cycling that over a few years, you're going to be way happier with how you look and being able to do most of that in maintenance a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. And it's far more enjoyable that way. And I, I mean, if people actually do what we're describing a few years to say that your life could look dramatically different is even that is a a drastic understatement for how different your life can look when you kind of do use this phased approach and to go back to the uh, telephone pole analogy. Just think about that hypothetical of instead of if you ask most people who were dieting, I mean, this is a shameless plug for coaching at this point, but most people who are dieting who are not working with a coach, like, oh, so what's the plan? What's the exit strategy? When are you taking yeah. breathers? And I'm not saying this to make anybody feel silly, of course. I understand these are foreign concepts to most people, understandably, it's not their world. Um, but 95% of people that you'd pull off the street who are dieting, they're like, I don't know, I'm just thinking like, I try to stay away from carbs and I would do a little bit more cardio and then I'll stop like when I have my, when I reach my goal weight or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's the equivalent of me saying sprint up that hill and there's no real end in sight. Um, So yeah, I I do think it makes a, a drastic difference psychologically speaking. And I think it's actually helpful. I mean, obviously during the dieting phases, when you know, let me actually rephrase this a little bit. It is very common that people hold themselves back by very very frequently more than they realize rationalizing slightly off days. So we all know when we have these crazy benders and we wake up in a pile of pop tart wrappers or maybe that's just me, I don't <laughs> know like we're we're aware of those days, but I think the days that really shoot people in the foot is when their calorie range is, you know, 1650 to 1800 and on Tuesday they land at 1950 something. So we look at it in isolation and go, okay, it's 150 calories, close enough. Close enough is like the death of most diets. And then two days later, you're like 21. Well, my coworker brought in cupcakes for her birthday and I didn't want to be rude. So now you're 300 over. And then Saturday, halfway through the day, you stop tracking and you just sit there and say, well, I, I was pretty mindful. I didn't eat super well, but I was mindful of portions. And now you're 700 off. Well, guess what? That on paper, 3,500 calorie deficit, maybe that just got cut in half with those three decisions and you just, if you continue this, you've just doubled your dieting timeline from a hypothetical, you know, for some people, maybe it's 16 weeks. Now you're looking at 32 weeks with a lot of those close enough, close enough, close enough. But when you have that, again, we're not like married to a specific schedule for the next 12 weeks, you have to be perfect or anything like that. But when you know, okay, I'm in a 10 week dieting phase, it gets far easier to tolerate those sacrifices, you know, in those moments where somebody comes in with, you know, cupcakes for their birthday. And instead of saying, no, I can't, or I shouldn't, or justifying having it, you just say, you know what, I'm going to choose not to have it because I'm choosing to prioritize my future goals. And I will still celebrate you and make you feel great for your birthday. There are other ways to do Mm -hmm. that and check that box. So again, I I think it makes a, a, I mean, it's a, I'm a broken record at this point, but it makes a huge difference in the middle of a dieting phase when it comes to putting two feet in the dieting door because most people are kind of half in half out and that's that on paper diet but it's been six months and you've barely seen results
0: very well said it's the example you just laid out like that just shows how easy it is right to to just be a little bit miscalculated which is all you need at that point right it's like it's like having an airplane and you just tilt the wheel just a little bit, right? And then in a hundred miles, like you end up at a completely different island than where you were supposed to be going. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I think, I think why that's important is that it just shows like, there's nothing wrong with you for, for not being in a calorie deficit the way you thought you were going to be. And more importantly, you're not broken. Yes. Right. You're not damaged. Yes. And I think that is super, super important because there's a lot of people that that want to make you think that you are. And it's very good for business to convince you that because what, <laughs> what you and I just laid out in the last 50 minutes, right, mm-hmm. is like a model to sell somebody of, hey, maybe we should try to reverse diet and bulk up for a little bit except we did it in a way less sexy way than
1: not (laughs) not very marketable conversation. Yes. Or like get protein, get stronger. It's like, yeah, (laughs) maybe
0: do, maybe do a cycle like three times a year, but it's, and maybe it'll take you like four years. That's okay. But (laughs) (laughs) that's, uh, it's, I, I think that's, I think it's just so important for people to, to understand the nuances of all these pieces to kind of protect themselves from, from some of these, these gimmicky things that you see online. And look, there are some people that truly do have damaged metabolisms in terms of like hormone dysfunction. Like that does exist. But if that is you, if you have a, you know, dysfunctional thyroid, you should be working with an endocrinologist, endocrinologist, right? Not some influencer that he found online. Like I, I think if you, if you truly suspect that you've tried everything, like go to a doctor and actually make sure that they are, they're checking your hormones before you assume that that's that's the issue.
1: Before you self-diagnose or buy into, you know, a hormone balancing coach. And again, I'm not trying to stir it up here, but we're looking at a medical situation at that point. And the good news there is you would then be receiving medical help for an actual diagnosed problem rather than just listening to somebody who tells you that you're broken or whatever. And I like that you emphasize kind of the take-home message of all of this, even if some of the action steps we're describing might sound a little challenging or daunting at this time, is that... You're not broken. You're not damaged. You're not too old. All of this stuff is within your control. And this is not to say that we all don't have like our unique hurdles and obstacles. So it's not as simple as, you know, like people think, oh, if I have the right calorie goal and a step minimum, I'm just going to crush life and lose fat easily. I'm not saying that's the case. Um, but at least you can kind of get that monkey off your back of, all right, I'm going to stop wasting time pointing fingers at my metabolism or my age or, you know, genetics, hormones, whatever. And to, Go full circle to begin the conversation. I'm not saying those things don't impact the process at all, but nothing is actually going to supersede or kind of override like the decisions you're making food wise on a daily basis, which yet again is probably the least marketable sentiment of all time.
0: <laughs> Love it. Awesome. All right. Well, it took us a while, but we finally got this recorded. Got so I, I think, uh, I think it'll help a lot of people. I appreciate your time so much, Sam, and I can't wait to have you back on.
1: It's a pleasure coming on. Thank you, brother.
0: All right. Bye, everybody.